like is why don't you all stand up with me? Go ahead, all of you stand up and turn around and look at the camera. And Josh tells me that even though they, he and Beth, he and Bethany are on their honeymoon, that he will be watching the service. So, so why don't you say congratulations, Josh and Bethany, with me? Ready? Congratulations, Josh and Bethany. All right. Now we so so in church work, you get both sides of it. You get the happy stuff and you get the sad stuff. And now I got a sadder one for you. Our brother Virgil uh, passed away yesterday, and um, his his service will be on Thursday, and there'll be a ten o'clock viewing with the 11 o'clock service, with a graveside uh, to follow. So so let's, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that you are in charge of giving and taking away. And Lord, we ask you to help us trust you in all the giving and all the taking away. And Lord, we do want to pray, especially for the merchants and their families right now, Lord, that you would be the Prince of Peace to them, that you be the God and Father of all comfort to them, Lord, that you would walk with them. Let them feel your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 4, if you have your Bibles with you, 1 Samuel chapter 4. You know what a magic spell is? You know, in a magic spell, you say the right words the right way, and you command power beyond yourself. You know what a magical artifact is? Magical artifact is something that you can hold, that if you're holding it, you have power that is bigger than you. You have power that is beyond you. I, I think, you know, a magical spell, you can all think of probably magical spells or examples of magical spells. Maybe, maybe a magical artifact would be the ring of power in the Lord of the Rings or maybe Excalibur. I'm not up on my fantasy literature as much as maybe some of you are, but I, I think of those as like magical artifacts. There's also... I mean, these are ancient, ancient ideas. I think of also the idea of a transactional sacrifice. So if you lived in ancient Athens and, and you were a merchant and you had to take, take something, a big load of something valuable to Ephesus, then you might go down to the harbor and offer a big, expensive sacrifice to Poseidon so that he would give you safe journeys. Like, okay, I'll give you the big, expensive sacrifice if you give me safe journeys. Question. Is that how our faith works? Do we say 
magic things and then somehow wield God's power? Is that how faith works? Do we, do we offer big sacrifices and then somehow make a transaction with God and the way we serve, the way we give, the way we, the way we love, the way we attend? Is, is that how faith works? If that's not how faith works, then what is prayer? If that's not how faith works, then, then how does it work? Because I think that, I think there are people that really are frustrated with God for not giving them what they want. For not coming through. They feel like, I've been faithful. I've showed up. I've given. I've tried hard. And God, you're not coming through. You're not doing what I want you to do. And so when that goes on long enough, eventually they say, well, I'm going to quit on my faith because God is not. I don't know. How, how did you fill in that, that blank? Because God isn't healing me. Because God didn't save them. Because God didn't give me a. So we can quit on God when God doesn't do what we want him to do. Because we think of God like the, like the magical God. So if you're like, but that's not, oh, that's not true. Well, well, let's talk about that. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they encamped at Ebenezer. So if you like to take notes in your Bible, you might have this as a cross reference. If you look at the really fine print at the bottom of your page. But in 1 Samuel 7.12, we're told how Ebenezer got its name. All I'm going to tell you right now is that God is going to help them get a proper view of him. And it is not the magical view. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. That is what Bible scholars call the divine passive. In other words, God defeated Israel, not the Philistines. That's how, that's how they viewed it. It, it's, it, otherwise, it would be the Philistines defeated Israel. But yeah, that's not how it was. Israel was defeated by God, and the Philistines were at the battle. This is how they understood it. Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. If you keep track of how many people die for the Israel to learn this lesson, it is staggering. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So if you remember the book of Joshua, when God wants the people to win, they win. 
When God wants the people to lose, they lose. When, if you remember the book of Judges, when God wants Israel to win, they win. When God wants them to rule, lose, they lose. And so they know who's in charge. This is monotheism. There is one God who is utterly in charge. These other gods don't count. So because we lost, it must be that God defeated us before the Philistines. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh. Hey, that's, that's been there a couple times. What, what ark are we talking about? Are we talking about the really big boat that Noah built to save life? No. We're talking about the ark of the covenant that is a symbol of God's presence. And so they say, we're losing because God's not fighting for us. What can we do to get God to fight for us? Should we pray and repent? No, no, that would take too much time. What we need to do is go get the Ark of the Covenant. That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts. It's, it's all this time before in 1 Samuel. It's just been the Ark, the Ark, the Ark, or the Ark of the Covenant. Here, it's the full name, so you understand the gravity of what they're doing. They're without seeking the Lord, without repenting, without praying, without any of that. They just go and get the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. That Ark of the Covenant. The place where God sits. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. So if you haven't been with us for a while, or if, let, me, let, me, let me ask this for the people who haven't been with us for a while. Are those good guys or bad guys? Bad guys, thank you. We're there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. They're the priests. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered into the camp, or came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, and the earth resounded, you know, Every, all of a sudden, Hophni and Phinehas come marching into the camp with the Ark of God on their shoulders. And everyone goes, yeah, we're going to win now because Yahweh's going to fight for us. We have the magic box where God sits and now we're going to control God and God's going to fight our battles for us. How do you think that's going to go? And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What is this great shouting the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. And they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews if they have been to you. Their theology is not perfect. But they do understand that God is very, very powerful. They do get that right. In fact, you might notice that their theology isn't that much different than the Israelites' theology. They think of God as something very, very big, very, very powerful, a very, very important force to learn how to wield. So they say, be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled 
every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. How many is up there? 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. A staggering price. A staggering cost to learn the lesson that God will not be manipulated but will be worshipped. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the Ark of the Covenant of God was captured. Okay, you might count how many times you see that phrase. The Ark of the Covenant of God was captured. Think of the price that God, think of this, you know, 4,000 men die, then 30,000 men die, high priests are dead, and now God's, the symbol of God's presence is captured. And the Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That is a fulfillment of the word of the man of God, 1 Samuel 2, 34. And a man of Benjamin ran from the, from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Does his heart tremble for his sons? He knows they're going to get what's coming to him. But the ark of God, he's nervous about. And when the man of God came, and when, sorry, when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is the uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and with his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? Eli has always been a little dense. You know, I fled from the battle today, but how did it go? Maybe there's a silver lining. And he brought the news and answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there was also had been a great defeat among the people. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken. Another fulfillment of Hannah's poem, Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2.10, how God will break his enemies. And he died, for the man was old and heavy. And he judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured. Have you seen that phrase before? You have. And when, the, when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her husband-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth and her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid. You have borne a son. Look, no matter what, we will always underestimate the importance of giving birth to a son in that culture. 
in that culture. It helps us understand chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. Do not be afraid. It's okay that you're going to die. You've born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. And I'll explain why in just a second, but the map is up there because this is something that will happen several generations later. Several generations later, Israel will have rebelled and rebelled and rebelled against God. And God will finally, after warning them and warning them and warning them, God will send them into exile, specifically the Babylonian exile in 586 B.C., like before Christ. And so Israel is the red, Judah, or I'm sorry, Jerusalem specifically is the red arrow up there, and then they go to Babylon where the arrow is pointing. This would be important because the glory has departed from Israel for these exiles that will later on read this narrative. What they will know is that God, with his presence, went into exile first because this verb, has departed, means or has gone into exile. See, God was so determined for them to understand who he was, for them them to get that he is not someone to be manipulated. I'm going too fast. God was so determined that they understand their relationship with him was not one where they manipulated him. God was willing to himself allow his presence, allow the symbol of his presence to go into exile. He's like, you will not get this wrong about me forever. You will learn this lesson. So she names her son Ichabod because the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured. Have you seen that phrase before? And because of her father-in-law and her husband, and she said the glory has departed from Israel. That's that same word. It has gone into exile. For the ark of God has been captured. What do we do with this? What do we learn about God from this? What I learn about God from this is that the Lord will be worshipped. He will be worshipped by his people. And the Lord will not be manipulated by his people. He will be worshipped and he will not be manipulated. You know, if you, if you think ahead in the story, God allows his presence to go into exile and the enemies are gloating. They're gloating so much over, look at we, how we've conquered the God who conquered the Egyptians. And they're gloating so much they put it in the temple of Dagon. And then they go, in the morning, they go into the 
into the temple of Dagon, and there is Dagon fallen, face down, head broken off, hands broken off before the symbol of God's presence. And God gloats over Dagon because God will be worshipped. He will be worshipped. And you think of generations later when God will come himself in the person of Jesus. And he will walk among us. And he will live in perfect obedience to the Father. And he will go from from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And he will willingly give his life for ours. And, and his enemies will gloat over him. And they will put him in the tomb. And they will gloat. And Satan and death will be gloating. And our Lord in exile in the tomb. Will gloat over death. As he stands in victory. And rises again. He will be worshipped. He will be worshipped. Make no mistake. You're not going. He is not. The Lord is not a power. To be wielded. The picture we get of God in the book of Acts. Is a rushing wind that no one can hold. He's not a power to be wielded. He's not. I think of like, how did Israel think of God? And maybe they thought of him like a pet elephant that was really, really strong that they could somehow control. You can't control God. God says about himself in the Bible that he's like a consuming fire. You can't control a consuming fire. You can't control God. Sometimes we think of God like a waiter where we're sitting at the table where we're living our life and then we pray for the things we want like we would call the waiter over and bring us stuff we want. I know you're like, I don't do that. Just listen to yourself pray. and See if you're talking to God like a waiter. So, you know, we, we, tell, we tell God, well, I want this and I'm ready for this and I'm ready for that. and No, no, not yet. But I do want that. I do want this other thing. And God's not a waiter to cater to our every want. The Bible says that God is like a loving, heavenly Father who knows what we need long before we ask Him. Gives us what we need, not what we, not everything we ask for, because He's so much smarter than us. Because he loves us even more than we love our own selves. God will be worshipped, not manipulated. Now, look at the price. Look at the price Israel had to pay to see that God was not to... God would not be manipulated. Look at the price they had to pay. You think of Hophni... And Phineas, who thought of God as very, very powerful, but not someone that had to be obeyed. Think of Israel that thought of God as someone very, very powerful, but not someone to be feared, not someone to be obeyed, not someone to be repented to, not someone to be worshipped, but a very, very powerful pet. 
to be brought out on a magic box when they needed him. Look at the price they paid for that. Thirty four thousand men. The priests. The Ark of the Covenant. Look at the price they paid for that. And ask yourself. What price am I going to have to pay to learn this lesson? What will God bring into my life or take out of my life before I learn that God will be worshipped, not manipulated? If you look back in the past, I mean, what have you already lost? What are you losing right now? What has this lesson already cost you? That you've thought of God as a very, very powerful force to be wielded rather than worshipped. What's that already cost you? What's it costing you now and what will it cost you in the future? God will you worshipped not manipulated. So what should we do? Here's where I'd start. I'd start with the first thing I would, I would really want to push on is to say this is really good news that God will be worshipped, not manipulated. I don't, want, I don't want to make God's decisions for him. I am not smart enough. I am far too selfish to wield God's power. I am far too self-centered to wield God's power. I need God to be God so I can just be me and look up and trust him. So the first thing I'd say is, let's start by just rejoicing that God doesn't give us everything we ask for. That there isn't a magic formula that someone can figure out so they can wield God's power. Because who knows? That we wouldn't necessarily be the first ones to figure that out. Maybe our enemies would figure that out. And Imagine that. I'm just glad that God is God and we're not. You think of, like, 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 you think of when, when sometimes, sometimes two and three-year-olds wield a lot of power. Want more power than you give them. And they see you working with a hammer and they want a hammer. You know? So you give them the hammer, right? And you got a three-year-old walking around with a hammer. You don't do that. Why don't you do that? that is way too much power for a three-year-old to wield. You don't give a three-year-old everything, everything they want because if you did, they would do nothing but eat fruit snacks and watch YouTube videos. But look, the distance between a three-year-old and you is minute. It is nothing compared to the distance between you 
and God. Think, think of how glad we are that God is utterly in charge and he knows so much better what a good plan is than I do or you do. So this is, first, this is really good news. Second, okay, so the first thing is, what do we do with knowing that God will be worshipped, not manipulated? First, rejoice. This is really good news. Second, I'd say, you've got to learn how to pray like Jesus. So I find myself, whenever I pray, and you might be totally different than me, and I, I hope you are, but I find myself asking for stuff I want. Unless... I pray like Jesus taught me to pray. And he taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be, or may glory come to your name. The implication for me is, and not mine. Hallowed be your name, not my name. Your kingdom come. Most of my requests are, help me look good. Unless I pray through Jesus' lenses. Or, May my kingdom come here. Like, I want my will to be done here on earth as it is already being done in my mind. You know, as I have this vision for God, like, accomplish this for me. Unless I learn to pray like Jesus, unless I tune my heart to pray like Jesus, where he said, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And I want you to know that when Jesus was really, really pressed in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was being pressed, when the pressure was on, so much so, he is under so much pressure, he was sweating blood. He prayed, may this cup be taken from me. So he did. He did tell God what he wanted. He did make his request known to God. That is something we should do. But then what did he pray? But not my will be done, but your will be done. That is an act of surrender. That is an act of worship, not manipulation. So first... We rejoice that God is in charge and not us because he's so much better at it. Then we learn to pray like Jesus, that we learn to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. We make our request known to God, but we also do this in light of Jesus' prayer, how Jesus taught us to pray and how Jesus actually prayed. And then, and then finally, finally we we surrender. We surrender to Jesus because he will not be manipulated. He will be worshipped. Now, I chose this word surrender because you can't threaten God and surrender to God at the same time. You can't say to God, I'm not going to keep serving you unless you give me however you would fill in the blank, and surrender to God. Surrender is, I'm yours. I'm yours. Surrender is obeying God all the way with all of it, giving all of it to God all the time. 
That's surrender. You can't threaten God and surrender to God. You can't say, well, I'm going to stop serving. I'm going to stop attending. I'm going to stop participating. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to stop that. And surrender to God at the same time. You can't. You also, we also need to know we're not talking about a conditional surrender where you make a deal with God and say, look, I'll surrender to you if you give me X, Y, or Z. This is, this is an unconditional surrender to God where you say, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. I am yours. This is what it means to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. You are king and I am not. And I give you all of it. Every last inch of it. So those of you who find yourself really being pressed and really being ready to quit because God is not giving you what you want. Because God hasn't, you know, you've prayed and it hasn't worked. You've given and it hasn't worked. You've tithed and it hasn't worked. You've served and you've joined the church and it hasn't worked. Nothing, you can't do anything to get God to do what you want. Can I just say, you do need to quit on that view of God. God, <laughs> for, get rid of that view of God, for the God who will be worshipped. The God who is utterly in charge. The God who is utterly king. The God who will not be manipulated. Give your life to the one who is Lord and who is smart enough to create all of this, who is consistent enough to hold it all together, and who is loving enough to give his life for ours. That's the God you are surrendering to. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us come to you with white flags held high, saying, we can't control you, we can't manipulate you, we just have to worship you. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us give up the idea that we know what is best for the idea that you know what is best. Help us give up the idea that that it would be better if you answered our prayers our way for the idea that you are utterly trustworthy. Lord, pull us towards yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.